welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. Today's episode is the finale of our second season and of our first year of Movement Memos, and I'm so glad you could all join us. This is a time of mixed emotions for many of us, as our relief about Trump's exit slams up against the reality of the moment. A looming housing crisis, broken promises around stimulus checks, and a terrifying new strain of COVID-19 that is barreling towards dominance in the U.S. In Chicago, where I live, restaurants are reopening, even as predictions about the new strain become increasingly dire. Meanwhile, the vaccine rollout continues to falter, and we now have word that nearly 20 million doses may have gone missing under the Trump administration. It's overwhelming, to say the least. So what do we do when we get overwhelmed? Well, about four years ago, I was incredibly overwhelmed. I recognized Donald Trump as a would-be autocrat who was fueling a fascist movement. But I needed to know more. So I set out on a research project. And as it happened, my friend Ajaris Dixon, who is a grassroots strategist in New York City, had the very same idea. So over time, we mapped things out together. We read histories and strategic texts and talked with people who had survived autocracies. And we amassed a lot of knowledge that we put to work in our organizing. We weren't experts or historians. We were simply, as Ajaris would say, bitches who read. I am excited to have Ajaris back on the show today. But we won't be doing a deep dive on fascism though I will be linking to episodes about fascism in the show notes. Today, we are going to talk about pivoting to meet the moment and processing where we've been. In Chicago, I have already pivoted to working on medical-grade mask distribution because it has become painfully clear that my city is not going to warn residents that we should all have N95s or KN95s as the new strain takes hold. We know that the next few months are going to be rough and that mutual aid and other forms of community care will be more important than ever. We also know that this is going to be a time of troubleshooting amid disaster. But how do we build beyond merely reacting to events as they unfold? How do we strengthen the fabric of our organizing so we can respond to crisis from a place of power? And how do we sustain each other as we struggle? Ajaris and I got together earlier this week to try to answer some of those questions, and I hope you will enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Today's guest is my friend, research buddy, and co-struggler, Ajaris Dixon. Ajaris is an organizer, a grassroots strategist, and co-author of the book Beyond Survival, Strategies and Stories from the Transformative Justice Movement. Ajaris, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kelly. Excited to be with you. I usually ask my guests how they're doing, but we've been talking a lot, and I feel like maybe we don't know yet. So much has happened, and there's so much to process. You and I spent a lot of time over the last four years tracking the march of fascism, strategizing and organizing, making safety plans for ourselves and others, talking about what self-defense looks like, and texting late at night because we were just completely terrified. And damn, we're still here. Whoa. We are still here. 
which I wasn't sure about, you know? I feel a little discombobulated and out of sorts, but I also feel a mix of relief and readiness, you know? But that's, yeah, I'm, I, I'm in a thinking space around what do I need as a person? What do our communities need? How can I support movement groups well? Um, and just a little bit of like, Whoa, all that did happen. Same here. Well, this episode marks the end of our second season and of our first year of Movement Memos. And I'm so glad you could be here to mark this occasion with me, because I feel like you and me have created some of the best episodes of this show together. Well, you know, I don't listen to myself talk, so I, I can't speak to that. I... I am really grateful for Movement Memos as a space to dig into politics in a really tumultuous time. I think one of the things I've been, I think, experiencing and witnessing is how much, for lack of better language, bad news overload people were experiencing and how much the like, disconnect from critical information we were having with organizers, activists, other folks on the left I was engaging with. And so... I really appreciate that you would kind of be like, here's the thing we should be looking at. Here's what we're talking about. Here's how we're digging in deeper. Here's the history of this issue. Like, I think our folks needed guideposts because folks were overwhelmed, traumatized, trying to take care of their health, trying to take care of others, you know? So I am pretty damn grateful to be here with you too and grateful for what you've created. Well, I appreciate that so much and I appreciate you. And I hope you've been getting some rest finally. Not that there isn't work to do, but you personally definitely deserve some rest. Well, so funny is, yeah, I'm going to, um, I'm going to take a couple of days of rest. And so in both the type A person that I am and um, the way that um, I do a lot of uh, strategy support, coaching and facilitation for movement groups. So I planned to kind of, short vacations in January, two just in case one of them got canceled by fascism. And uh, so on January 6th, I was about to turn off the news <laughs> and uh, get, you know, turn off my Wi-Fi and sleep and eat, you know, sleep. I really wanted to sleep, rest and like eat good food all day. And then I like, I just remember like I had my TV on mute and then I started to see kind of the capital attack. And I was like, okay, well, thank goodness we planned for this. Not like, you know, thank goodness this is happening, but like, okay, well, you know, fascism, everything is unpredictable. And, and, and yeah, I think um, the funniest thing is I come here and I talk a lot about fascism, but I had no intention to really dig in. Like some of this all started with I was, I was talking to you a lot. I started to listen to different podcasts and read a lot of books because I was thinking about how do I support leftist organizers if I don't understand the political terrain, right? And knowing that the global fascist movement was impacting us, but I didn't really understand how to separate fascism from other forms of right-wing ideology or other forms of right-wing organizing. And I do remember... The point, there was a point where it was like, it was hard for, almost to take ourselves seriously, or I don't want to speak for you, because so few people were having the conversation. 
And then I, like a couple of months ago, something really changed for me when I'm like looking at MSNBC and Joe Scarborough is yelling about fascism, right? And he's got Madeleine Albright on to talk about her book on fascism. And it's like, okay, well, I guess we didn't get it wrong, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but it still means what, you know, what do we do? Because it was a very quick mainstreaming of the conversation that didn't necessarily mean like a huge strategic pivot for us, right? And I think that was the thing that we were trying to do was like, hey, everyone, wake up, <laughs> because this means we ne- our organizing needs to look a bit differently. Right. And I think that's super important to name. I still feel that most people don't realize and may never realize how close we came to living in a fascist autocratic state. But the way in which fascism was ultimately acknowledged in the media and by the powerful did not necessarily help us because you had people for the last four years uplifting an analysis of fascism for the purpose of not just stopping Trump, but getting people to understand how this happens and why it happens and why it happened here. And people who plugged into that analysis got to understand that Trump wasn't some fluke product of our reality TV society, but that neoliberalism, which we've now returned to, paved an inevitable path to right-wing dominance. And with Trump, we were faced with the possibility that this consolidation of power that the GOP had been working towards for decades was going to happen with a reality TV star as its fascist autocratic leader. A lot of people dismissed that analysis, and I want to read a quote from an article in Intelligencer that came out two days after the Capitol raid, where an unidentified senior Trump official said, quote, This is confirmation of so much that everyone has said for years now. Things that a lot of us thought were hyperbolic. We'd say, Trump's not a fascist, or he's not a wannabe dictator. Now it's like, well, what do you even say in response to that now? End quote. And so we finally got that acknowledgement that we had not been wrong, and even Trump's own people are like, yes, he's a fascist. But what's happened in the wake of that acknowledgement? We have people panicking the way they did after 9-11, and instead of questioning the neoliberal austerity agenda that paved the path to Trumpism, we are in danger of seeing new anti-terror legislation that will be used to target the very communities that spent the last four years raising the alarm. And I am not trying to go down a rabbit hole about neoliberalism. We have done that recently on the show, and I will drop some links in the show notes. But I want people to think critically about the story that's being told right now, just as there was a story that was being told at the start of the Trump administration about how things wouldn't be all that bad and how he was probably too incompetent to do too much damage and how the institutions of government would stop him from doing so many of the things that he actually wound up doing. And those of us who were insisting that we were looking at a wannabe autocrat and the potential rise of fascism were mocked and dismissed. And I want people to think about that now as they see how people who are critical of Biden are treated. Because people who are bringing up the history of neoliberalism, of Biden himself, of broken promises, or really just what it's going to take to not wind up back in the hands of a fascist, No one wants to hear us right now any more than they wanted to hear about it back then. And while we are by no means talking about the same threat, we are talking about patterns that repeat and end in predictable ways. 
And we are also talking about people who don't want to process how bad bad can get. So they tell themselves stories about how it all might work out, or that we're being rescued, or they punish people who contradict those stories. So I just want to caution our listeners that when you see people being told to shut up and stop fucking with everyone's peace of mind because they're explaining neoliberalism, or Biden's record, or how neoliberalism paved the path to fascism, and will again if we don't stop it, don't indulge that head-in-the-sand nonsense, because trust me, it's no fun being the messenger. People shoot at you. No one wants to be the messenger, and no one who sees something terrible on the horizon wants to be right. Trust me, as someone who has a pretty solid track record of predicting political events, being wrong is incredibly underrated. Sometimes I just long for the warm embrace of being wrong. (laughs) I know. I think we said this to each other a point where we were, I we was like, I want to get this wrong, right? Like, I love being right, <laughs> right? Like, I, it's, 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 it's a part of my personality I'm working on, the need to be told that I was right, you know? And I was like, I'm very okay with getting this wrong. I'm very okay with exaggerating. I'm very okay with you just being like, yes, that was alarmist. You got extra. You just read a lot of books and lived in a different world, right? <laughs> So sorry. Sorry for scaring you. But it was also a way that we could see that like when people and I think it was like the trauma of the times, folks were so overloaded that they also couldn't take in the information. And so it's both uh, exactly what you said about how close we came, but how close we still are. And, and, And right in this moment, I think this moment is how do people like people desire and deeply need like rest or a shift or right? Like, and I, I don't want us to like brand new day it so hard that we ignore, right? Like that we still have, right? Like we, we still have a fascist and autocratic movement in this country. There is still a global fascist movement. They are still working to build power and they are angry, right? So we are assessing a new political terrain. So what's the same and what's different? I think what's the same is that organizing matters, right? Meaning that we cannot expect that policies as we need them or expect them will be easy wins at all under Biden, right? That we still need to build mutual aid, that we still need to continue abolitionist work. What it does mean is it'll be fascinating because we're going to have and we are we as broad strokes, but like many folks who are either in organizations or maybe longer term leftists, you will know somebody who will be in collaboration or at least talking to the Biden administration, right? And that's different. And what we saw uh, when this was happening under the Obama administration is sometimes we gave, uh, often we gave Obama too many passes, right? Like, oh, it's hard. Oh, you know, and and did not always protest is hard or hadn't really figured out if we wanted to do inside and outside game and what that looked like, right? Um, Or what are the short-term policy victories and wins that we need to survive and how do we also keep pushing without spending too much time just arguing with with each other? Because there's a piece that some of this is about strategy and um, strategy can align with our politics. So I think of that as, as as what's different What's the same that we don't want to be the same is that 
there's still a lot of danger. We want to believe that we're outside of danger, right? But the right still has tremendous power, right? They still believe that their quote unquote way of life is being eradicated. The militias are still there and people will also continue to, um, and, and the level of misinformation, right? Um, what people believe about Antifa, what people, what right-wing people believe about Black Lives Matter, that's, that's still present and COVID is still present from COVID deniers to just the massive amounts of sickness and uh, death. And also there are just so many people who also have really long-term health conditions that we still don't know what they look like, right? What's different is there's a vaccine What's the same is it's, it, it looks like there are still a lot of struggles to get access to it. The rollout um, under Trump is bad. It doesn't, it seems like it's still going to be pretty difficult under Biden. So under what we can call shifts in political opportunity that we will both want to celebrate and challenge, it was very easy for the left to kind of you laterally like Trump is bad, all bad. What we'll have to fight is a tendency to fight each other as opposed to fighting our targets, right? And there is a way that people could organize in solidarity against Trump. And we will still need broad coalitions. We will still need places to have broad strategy and places to have a lot of difference and figuring out how to communicate and challenge each other. Like, I don't, I don't know if we know yet how to have strategic disagreement or don't know is a pretty broad, let me get more specific. Many people on the, in the left that I am connected with struggle to have conversations around political disagreement. And I think we need them because I think strategy needs to be more nimble when you're navigating neoliberals than it does around neo-fascists. Well, we know that a lot of people want to sort of live in their relief right now and sort of give Biden time to figure things out. And some people are going to feel conflicted about challenging folks on that. We know because we have been here before that we are going to be told not to complain about Biden's policies in the beginning because his administration is new and Trump left utter catastrophe in his wake. Then later we'll be told that we need to quiet down because of the midterms, and then it will be about the general election. So how should people contend with that? I think that there's one piece where I want leftists to remember that leftists are a huge part of Trump's defeat. Like the electoral power that was harnessed, the, there were a ton of people who do not, are not particularly fond of, don't believe in this system, who are like, we need to get Trump out so that we can have a better organizing terrain to defeat this global fascist movement and to build some policy victories. There is no way Biden wins without like a lot of leftist organizers who overlap with movement for black lives and like migrants' rights movements and climate justice movement and so many like queer and trans liberation movements and BIPOC movements and indigenous movements. Like there's no way it happens. So I don't want us to forget that like we are the ones with the people power that built the people power. And so what's hard is 
because we have so many different visions of what we want, like what does a liberated society look like, we can get stuck around like when we have uh, what, what I would call like the ability to, to move things, but what do we want, right? Like being against is a little easier than what are we for if we have the opportunity to build some pieces of that. What do we say to the liberals who tell us to shut up about Biden? So the liberals who will tell you to shut up are not the people who actually won the election, right? <laughs> so it is only us deciding and choosing to play small to listen to those voices, right? And everyone who said, we are, you know, I'm doing electoral politics to choose, um, we're choosing our next opponent, right? Everyone who said that, I think one, all of us need to hold those organizations accountable for that stance and for that line, because there's gonna be this piece where there's gonna be a lot of like, folks will be drawn in and drawn close to be advisors to the Biden administration, right? But the tr truth is, is that, it's BIPOC movements that did this. And so we need to, to, to put like, yes, we deserve rest and relief. And we also need to think about what are the strategies and what are the policies that are needed in, for the next two years, particularly, so that we can get our communities more relief. Like, how are we thinking about housing? How are we thinking about healthcare, right? How are we thinking about the economic need of our communities so that we, are, we can strengthen our organizing. This is one of those moments where we lose power, like if we choose it, right? If we choose to kind of get stuck in more of an infighting mode as opposed to hear the policies, right? So I'm, I'm super excited about how M4BL has put out the BREATHE Act and they're like, and now we push this, right? And so I think it is about knowing what we want, going for it hard, and continuing some of the United Front and coalition alliances that people built to build power. And to not forget about the, like, to not have, I know a lot of folks who did electoral work, not just to win particular elections, but to build bigger bases, right? To build deeper relationships. And so what are the mutual aid needs of those communities? How do we support those communities? And how do we continue to build power outside of an electoral frame, but not ignoring the electoral context? So how do we stay in the game after the last year, after the last four years, but especially 2020? We saw an explosion of mutual aid efforts at the start of the pandemic, some of which have endured, but we as a society are still far too insular to do some of the work that needs to be done. I think it's still incredibly challenging under COVID for people to build new relationships under these times because so much is happening virtually. And we also know that so many low-income community members don't have a lot of access to the internet or are not as present on social media. But so I, I get really curious about both mutual aid base building and what I would also call like what are what are the ways that folks um what's what's the relief team for folks who've been doing mutual aid for the last year and i mean maybe my big top line for you no know, maybe i think the answer for whatever question you ask me kelly will be join an organization <laughs> build build broad alliances meet people you don't know and support the people you do know to deepen their political work because i think that's needed right now 
Can you say a bit more about those relief teams? Because we really need those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's why I mean. So I think that it's it's unfair and difficult to ask folks who are exhausted to just keep going <laughs> indefinitely. And I spent about 10 years doing active rapid response on violence and murder of queer and trans people of color. And so often when people talk about resilience or sustainability, they'll talk about the breaks that the people who are doing the work need, but sometimes you just need coverage, whether you need 24-hour coverage or you need to cover a neighborhood or whatever you need, right? And so I think of it as like, how do we bring in enough people so that we can think of it as shift work, right? <laughs> and so that's what I'm thinking about around around relief teams. So, you know, like I'm slightly connected to some of the mutual aid networks in, in my neighborhood. And that was mostly because I was struggling to figure out how to do that with my other political commitments and my asthma, right? But I think there are a lot of ways that I'm down to be in, I'm down to be like on the relief team. So I think it's, um, what's hard is that when folks do really tough work for a long time, there is a tendency to get insular because you have built trust, right? And new people can create a context for disagreement and misalignment and all of these other pieces are just differences in political perspective or just differences in political education. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just like, if everybody thought about what is the political project that I could increase my activity within, whether you want to become, you want to think about this relief team idea, or you want to deepen your work in another place, or you want to think about who you want to join. I think we, we need it. And it may not just be, I don't think it's just about mutual aid. I think a lot of us need someone to tap us on the shoulder virtually, you know, and say like, hey, homie, take a break. It was a hard year and I can do more. That resonates with me a lot as someone who has struggled with my health in the last year. Even when I was diagnosed with COVID last spring, I was in my bed with my laptop organizing and trying to help people who wanted to take action connect with other people in their neighborhoods, because it is hard for folks to just meet a bunch of new people when everyone's afraid to be around other people. So that takes work. That takes having folks people will trust with their information. And I worked on morning and healing projects so we could connect people with pastoral counseling and grief counseling as mutual aid and help folks organize Zoom funerals if they didn't know how to do that. And I will say me getting sick helped make that project sustainable because I didn't have the option of making myself so necessary that I could become a weakness. I was honest with people about the precarity of my health. And when things got bad, everything kept moving because. I had that relief in place within the group, and I just had a great meeting with that group this past week, and we are still offering that help. We will actually be looking for more providers soon to volunteer, but I had to again tell folks that there were very finite things I could contribute at this time, because I am again dealing with some health stuff, which could be lingering effects of COVID, we just don't know. But it's limiting, and while I am in this limited moment, that work will continue because we have honest communication and commitment. And when something needs to happen, the team works the problem. And I am so grateful for that. Yeah. Well, and also like there's a thing that happens. I feel like 
this is one of those moments that I'm experiencing this, but I'm experiencing it a bit less because my work looks different than it has in the past. So this is the moment where a lot of organizers and activists went really hard, right? Either this year or the last couple of months. And like, you look in the fridge and you're like, wow, like it looks terrible there. You look around your life, your relationships are a bit of a mess. You're, <laughs> you're a bit of a mess, right? Like just like basic maintenance. And um, it's not fun to sit in that, right? Like it's not like sometimes uh, we go so hard in our political work that we will jump on the next project just to avoid <laughs> sitting with, right? Like the, the parts of us that are tired drained or can even feel isolated or empty right and if you're just gonna call me out like this in public (laughs) (laughs) no i'm talking about myself i'm talking about myself but um and that's not the place we can organize anything sustainably from because we're running away from ourselves right uh and that is also really scary for other people to witness so nobody wants to join a movement of the haggard right um and so all that to say i i did a thing around my own sustainability where i created like an email list of friends who i think were had just different roles right weren't always frontline organizers and i was like here are the things i'm struggling with right and i'm and so people were like groceries and this and this just like supporting me on the basic needs uh, mostly because I do a lot of abolitionist safety and security work and because of threats of violence that were happening to movement groups, particularly in the last six months, we were inundated and we were just trying to like create so much support for people uh, that I was having trouble doing the basics. So I'm about to shut down that little email list now because now I can cook for myself and do all these things. But my thought will be like, I no longer want to be y'all's political project. I want you to build your own political projects, right? Like the most helpful thing you do in this moment is not like more support to me, but is like where, what other support and relief can we create? Like, I think, I think we're struggling on the left around figuring out how to have a space of like, I think opt in or consent, like everyone can do what they can. And also the, the right is coming at us like, like a truck, right? <laughs> and, and so, right, like how do we build spaces where we don't say to people, you're, we never want to go back. Cause I've, I've grown up in some leftist spaces where like there was a very clear message of your best was not good enough, right? So we, we don't want to create that, but we also don't want to create movements where some of us who are very in tune with the threat are overworking because we see what's happening and other people aren't either present with the threats or don't want to be present, right? So I think we have a big question around structures for sustainability that really put our collective needs first, right? And our collective health and our collective impact, effectiveness, as opposed to like, like a more individualistic frame on what sustainability looks like. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news publication that has thus far survived the decimation of independent news. But we can't create independent news on a corporate landscape without help from readers and listeners like you. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider heading to truthout.org to make a donation today. 
So looking back on the last four years, what do you think we learned? And what do you think we didn't learn? I almost want to like challenge the we a little bit because I, I, like, I think some of us learned. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm me- almost meaning that like, did we all learn that there's a global fascist movement, right? And will we hold on to that knowledge, right? I don't know if, we've, if we have truly learned the power of long-term strategic alliances, meaning for every political project we do, we all don't have to have the same politics, right? Like sometimes we can just agree on who our opponent is, or sometimes we can agree that everyone deserves housing, right? <laughs> and so I think we have not yet learned the difference between what many of us call a political home, right? <laughs> and a strategic alliance. And, <laughs> right? Like, and I think, so if we require every political space that we're in for us to have complete alliance, then we may not be building with people we don't know. We may not be building with people who aren't as politicized as us or who haven't had the same level of access, right? And we may not be building big enough formations to address sizable threats, right? And so that's the thing I'm still like, have we learned that? Have, and have we learned how to move through disagreement and harm or even just like um, hard conversations where the first go-to isn't, this is impossible, right? We've had to do a lot of work with groups around the difference between discomfort and harm and disagreement and harm. So I think, I think we learned that. What I hope we also have learned, but I'm not sure. So in the safety and security work I do, and I don't speak to specifics often, right? Like I, I help give a lot of trainings from like a black indigenous people of color movement led feminist queer and trans frame on what does it take to build safety and security. And what I experience is that folks only want to think about the, the safety of their safety periodically, right? And then they make these asks that are impossible, right? So we got so many asks about militias weeks before the election, weeks, right? And the thing that people want, I, I've been joking that people want safety in a box, right? And then I can say like, go to this website and download safety in a box, right? And <laughs> you'll put on this jacket and it will make you safe and everyone wears it, you know, and everybody's safe, right? But the truth is, is that whether it's organizing, whether it's safety and security work, like the transformative skills are built over time and, and with practice, right? So what we have to learn is that we will win in like, like over time, right? We build power over time, not points in time, right? The movies show you that the left went like this march and they shut it down and then they won, right? And, and it's great cinema, <laughs> but it's not organizing. It's not politics, right? Because they don't want to show that many meetings. <laughs> they don't want to show that many Zoom calls, right? All of, all of those pieces. So I, I want us to build the type of power and support on, on, on like a general boring ass Tuesday, right? And I want people to, to go to, I want us to build more consistency in how we show up in our organizing work, because then we'll know we're building 
transformation as opposed to like organizing from like a more reactive place. Yes. People need to embrace the unsexy stuff because most of the work is entirely unsexy. It's about building things with other people and things that are built sustainably require a lot of time and intention. And it requires us to be able to work with people we don't like. Some people got irked with me during inauguration week because I wrote a post saying, yes, we are going to have to fight Biden and he is not our savior, but laughing in people's faces right now because they are happy about the inauguration might make it harder to organize those folks later. And people got angry and claimed I was trying to silence critique because people simply couldn't handle being told that they would not be able to organize people that they openly hold in contempt. I am sorry, but there is no world in which you can do that. Like, I will sometimes tell people that we need to be able to organize with people who aren't of our own choosing. And when I say this, then folks will immediately come back at me with lists of people and types of people who they won't organize with. They jump straight to exclusion and the people they want absolutely nothing to do with, rather than asking themselves, okay, but who could I give a chance? Who could you challenge yourself to work with? Because you will not build anything by writing lists of people who are not welcome. You have to figure out who is welcome and also how far outside your comfort zone you can move. So much of what goes on online in terms of the discourse around politics is about exclusion and disqualification. And it's about people sort of affirming themselves as having the identity of being a person with good politics. There's a whole lot of self-exaltation and self-righteousness that really doesn't seem to go anywhere, and it definitely doesn't amount to living your politics in concert with other people. And it definitely doesn't amount to action. So for all of us who've survived hard things, and this is the part where I think um, I almost might say, I don't want to speak for your experience, but as you have a long history in direct action, I have a long history of security, right? You don't get to choose whose body you put yourself on the line for. You just don't. And uh, like, if you are really doing the work, and if you believe in your politics, then you, at some point, show up for strangers. And it aligns with so many other experiences as a marginalized person, right? So as a survivor, you don't always get to choose who helps you survive. And so there, there is a piece around preciousness and privilege around wanting to say that I will only work with people with these politics. Now, I'm not saying that you have to work with people who have caused you harm. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a way that we are so quick to interpret that, that actually is about the fear of navigating something hard or the fear of navigating difference. And what Southern organizers, and I have a lot of family in the South, but what Southern organizers repeatedly say to me is that we don't have the same, we can't be as precious as y'all are up North, right? We have to build broad alliances of like of folks who are who believe in justice or who believe in freedom or who believe that people should have housing and that people should have food because of our organizing conditions and terrain. Like some of the bullshit arguments that y'all are in, <laughs> like they don't fly here because we need each other too much. And so I think it's just really critical for us to think about 
like, and I'm not a scholar of the right, like from what I've heard from the scholars who are like, they have been plotting and planning for at least 30 years. And of course more, we can go like the history of this country and white capitalists, like heteropatriarchal supremacy, but there's a strategic plan going on and, and they're going to continue to execute and up the ante. And I want to be in a left that challenges and pushes back and organizes towards the world that we want, as opposed to a left that argues about who can and can't be in the room when the fascists are coming for us. So that's, that's, my, that's my belief system on that. I am very grateful for the words, we don't always get to choose who helps us survive. Because wow, if we could all get our heads around that, the left could really be onto something. And it reminds me of a conversation you and I were having recently about how we didn't win anything in November, we survived. This is what living to fight another day looks like. And it's an ugly day at that, but we have it. We survived, and hundreds of thousands of people did not. And if we do the things we have always done, we will see the same outcomes. Neoliberalism will pave a path to fascism, just as it did before. And the next would-be autocrat is going to be a lot smoother, and will probably also understand how the government works. But people don't want to think in these terms right now. People really want to bask in the non-existent glow of a new day and to feel like we've won. And almost like they have to keep honoring and protecting the idea that we've won. I think there is, this is the part of me that's just done a lot of organizing around violence. People want to know when they're safe, right? So when people say we won, or the need to feel like we have won, and there is a permanent defeat, like this will never happen again. I think there's a, just a lot of fear that needs to be attended to, right? There's a lot of fear and there's a lot of trauma and that's what's happening to our folks, right? And, and so similarly to you, I think of neoliberals as like, like the neoliberal response to like a, a justice request is like, that's so nice, but that's just completely unreasonable. It's just completely impossible. <laughs> but you can meet with me about it. And you will, and you can send your letter here. And we're really trying, but you know, these Republicans, right? Like, and, and then like people just play that game and play that game and play that game for years and years and years. And, and it's a slow erosion of the gains that we've, we've seen, right? Or it's a slow erosion of social services and a taking over, but like through the proper channels. So because it's through the quote unquote proper channels and it's less like, there's a reason why it's hard for many of us to define neoliberalism because it blends, right? Like it blends and adapts and takes over in a particular way. So all, all that to say is if we could just reframe we've won into I'm tired, sleepy, and scared, <laughs> then, then we can attend to that, right? We can attend to that. Or I want an end point because I need to know when it's safe to mourn what happened last year or the last four years, right? And so like, if we understand that like, there's not a strategic end, there's a need for a pivot, but the right will keep organizing, right? And therefore, like, how do we take care of ourselves and each other 
to be able to continue to fight, right? Like, I think, I think that's, that's the need. And um, recognizing that, like, uh, phrases and belief systems that it's over and permanently defeated don't actually bring us anywhere closer to justice. So what do you find encouraging about the moment we're in? I have found, like, the rise in mutual aid networks incredibly inspiring and exciting. I found some of the electoral wins inspiring because of the sheer numbers of people that were engaged and the ways that people thought about how to do work that is very like face-to-face in new ways. I feel excited because there are a lot of like big kind of progressive formations that I'm very excited to watch and see what happens. I find it hopeful that there are some people who it seems like will take the need for us to create like safety and security support and particularly abolitionist safety and security support for groups and individuals seriously. And I think there is a way that because so much, there were so many systemic failures, there was an incredible increase in the amount of people who were talking about and believing and committing to abolition and also committing to defect. And this is going to connect to what something you said earlier, like if you don't have relationships with people who are different than you politically in some way, you don't actually get the chance to politicize people, right? And build stronger movements. So one of the most exciting things that's been happening to me all year was different people in my life, me not pushing them, but them saying to me, okay, what does this defund thing mean? (laughs) Will you explain it to me? (laughs) Cause I'm hearing it a lot. I might agree, I might not, but I feel like I can ask you my questions, right? Like if we don't have a left where enough people feel safe asking their questions, we don't build the size of the left and we don't always have Um, a space that's accessible to to folks who have tremendous experiences of state violence and harm, right? So I I just think of like all the different people in my, um, there was a moment where, you know, my mom is not always into transformative justice. And I think she read Miriam Kaba's uh, op-ed in the Times, right? My mom was like, this is terrible. And I was like, but mom, you taught me to not trust the cops. She was like, yeah, but I just, we don't need them. And I was like, yeah, we don't need them. Right. Um, And so that's a political opening that's incredible, right? And I hope that we keep building on that opening. And I also hope that, that we build Sorry, I just started to think about the people I know personally, right, who lost their lives this year, right? So I also hope that we build the space to, like, mourn our loved ones and to organize the support that they deserved and that wasn't there. I feel you and I'm with you in that grief and in that hope. And I could not agree more that we need to create spaces for support and for care, and to process the enormity of our losses, and also to honor and appreciate people while they're still here with us. 
You and I have talked a lot and complained a lot about people who didn't listen, who called us names for trying to warn them for the last four years that they were dealing with a fascist. But there were some pretty great people who did listen, or who had been raising the alarm themselves, and who did organize and who did take really important steps to create more safety in their communities and to remove Donald Trump. And some of those people may be tired, sleepy, and scared, but they are going to organize this year and take on neoliberalism. So as we wrap this season finale of the show, is there anything you would like to convey to those people specifically? Oh, I, my first thought was hugs and that's hard now. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, virtual hugs just doesn't sound this, but, but it's tremendous love, right? It's tremendous love because there has been so much, people have been under like incredible pressure, right? And unfair amounts of pressure. And I know, I know so many people who just didn't have enough support, whether it was that their organization was too small to meet the need or they were the only one in their formation or their collective who had this skill, right? Where all of our language and training around how to be healthy in this work didn't fit their context, right? And they just kept going while they were sick and they just kept going, right? And so to everyone who gave more than they probably had or who like lost something of themselves in the process, uh, it's it's really hard to do the work that co- that many people benefit from when it takes a lot from you individually, right? And there are never enough thank yous. There's never like you don't get a big thank you card like thank you from the left, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here's this a gift. Card. I've been waiting for mine. <laughs> Where I is like, it? <laughs> I, I, you know, and like, you know, I don't know, like a fruit basket or something, like, you know, um, bottle of wine, something, yeah, something, <laughs> right? Um, right. Often, thank you comes into like comes in the form of like being trusted to do even more, and 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 so I like a lot of people took a lot of risks because the other thing about knowing the context of fascism is that knowing that if there aren't enough people speaking out, they will target every, every, every individual voice, right? Right. Target and eliminate. So for people who held that and kept going and struggled to maintain, I am so grateful to be in community with so many of you and grateful for your work. And I will say thank you on behalf of the left, because there was tremendous labor and tremendous sacrifice, and much of it is not seen, that is helping a lot of people feel more ease right now. And, um, and I think I want to say like a real special, like I've got a lot of like older organizers in my life. And my favorite thing about movement elders is that they've weathered enough to kind of really give me a lot of context, right? Like he's to the right of Nixon and this is why. And, you know, like there were a lot of movement formations 
particularly, I would say in the 60s and 70s, that they just did a lot of political education, like more than many groups or people who are getting now. And so I know a lot of movement elders who wanted to be like quietly retiring, <laughs> right? Who really, who, who I, because I was in connection with them, they were like, whatever you need to talk, whatever you need, right? Whatever I can do, however I can help, however I can support, right? And so I think there's also a piece where to the extent that we can remember that our movements are and should be intergenerational because there's so much to learn from both folks who are older than us and folks who are younger than us, right? But I think like I have, I have a really big thank you for, um, for folks who've just been in it for a really long time. So they're real sharp at helping us all navigate the political terrain. So yeah, so yeah, maybe, maybe our next role can be um, thank you cards, uh, Kelly. That can be our next you know, uh, the next thing we do together. But I, I do think that one day we'll be able to like shower love on each other in the ways that we want to, you know, and be in spaces together to, to be able to show up for each other. But I think it's, maybe it's, you know, as an organizer, I always have to have an ask. So I, I, I guess I want all of us to think about what are the appreciations that we want to also give to each other and to ourselves for how we built our survival. I love that. I love that. And I am just so grateful for you, Ajaris, for your work and your friendship. And I can't think of anyone I would rather wrap this first year of this show with. So thank you for being who you are and for being here with me today. Kelly, I'm so grateful for you and for Movement Memos and for Truth Out and for you pitching and creating this political project as a way to bring light to all of us. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember the good we do matters. Movement Memos will be back in March. And until then, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truth Out, and Truth Out's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.